This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello and welcome to Self Work. I'm really happy to be with you today because I have just gotten through a terrible bout of flu, so my empathy for any of the rest of you who are in the same boat. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist from Fayetteville, Arkansas, and I've been in practice over 25 years. And I started Self Work because I not only wanted to reach the people who are already comfortable with psychological and emotional issues, or perhaps those who've been initially diagnosed with depression or anxiety, or were having some other kind of relationship problem that was maybe something a little more complicated than they were accustomed to, but also to those of you who might never darken the door of a therapist, but you're just curious enough to find out a little bit more about what a therapist might have to say. So no matter what group or whatever the reason you're here, I'm delighted and honored. Today, we're going to be talking about how to enrich your emotional life. And the pathway we're going to be talking about is through self-compassion. So many people tell me that they don't know how to begin to risk feelings that have been suppressed for years or feelings that they cannot even imagine feeling or they have no practice feeling. I'll hear things like, I just don't get angry or I haven't cried since I was a baby. It's not as simple as you think to actually connect with some emotions that you've suppressed or rigidly compartmentalized, as I like to say, especially in perfectly hidden depression. I also talked about this topic in episode 102, so if you want to take a look over there, there's some ideas there, but self-compassion is our topic today. I've got a link to that episode in the show notes. Now, there's always a caveat when I'm talking about reaching out to feel deeper feelings. Some people in therapy call it doing deep work, sort of like a massage that's more intense. It's just an emotional massage. That caveat is that trauma work, risking feeling emotions that are a result of trauma or abuse often needs to be done with a trauma expert. You can get overwhelmed or even dissociate if you're doing it by yourself. So please assess the risk carefully. And if you have any history of dissociation, you definitely want to consider getting actual treatment. Our listener email this week is from someone who's angry that a loved one attempted suicide, although she also talks about it with great compassion. She's just confused and afraid she doesn't have the right to be angry. So again, another caveat here, if you have any kind of suicidal ideation or you have a family member that died by suicide or attempt suicide, remember talking about this could be a trigger. So please take care of yourself. So let's relax and talk about self-compassion. One of the most pleasant things about the last few months is that I've gotten to talk to more and more people about perfectly hidden depression, mostly bloggers or podcasters. I won't go into too much about perfectly hidden depression except to say that that's the new book that I've published. And if you're curious about it, you can go to episode three and four and then several others interspersed throughout. It's when perfectionism masks depression. But I've been learning as I go. Many of you may remember that I talked here on self-work about the vulnerability inherent in writing a book, 
where I knew in my gut that as soon as it was finished, I'd discover something new that would be great to include, or I decided that I disagree with myself about something, or I could have said something so much more clearly, or new research would come out reflecting an even greater correlation between perfectionism and depression, or not. But I had to live with that ambiguity and that vulnerability, or not publish the book at all. And that wasn't an option. So what I'm finding with these interviews is that people are reading the book and absorbing its ideas through the lenses of their own experience, either personal or professional, and offering their own thoughts to me. So I've had this experience that I was somewhat afraid of having, but actually it's quite welcome. I'm learning more about the topic, and I'm realizing I wish I'd written a chapter on teaching children about vulnerability or what particular issues each age group or gender identification might have in addressing perfectionism and shame, and what happens to perfectionism as you age, or how therapists can detect someone with perfectly hidden depression when they're sitting right in front of them, and the list goes on and on. For example, when I was talking to Dr. Fujian Zen, and the YouTube link is included in the show notes, I was very struck with one of her thoughts. She said, you know, when I thought about perfectionists prior to reading your book, I'd always thought of it as a character trait that had more to do with anxiety, but now I can see it differently. Whether or not you identify with perfectly hidden depression or you're just someone who's not comfortable with expressing emotions, that you like to stay more in control of that, you worry about what you might look like, what you might sound like to someone else, that you won't look self-competent. But there's a problem there. If there are feelings buried far underneath the surface that need to be connected with or comforted or soothed, those emotions, those experiences, those feelings are going to have an effect on you no matter what. And what we're talking about today is that through self-compassion, through the very act of recognizing those feelings exist, Your feelings of understanding and tenderness toward yourself can lead to huge changes. Now, a lot of times I'll use the term self-compassion and people will say, what, you want me to feel sorry for myself? Say, no, no, no. Self-compassion is far from self-pity. Dr. Kristen Neff, who's the author of the book Self-Compassion, writes that there are three elements to it. Mindfulness, recognition of common humanity, and self-kindness. Let me quote her. Having compassion for oneself is really no different than having a compassion for others. Think about what the experience of compassion feels like. First, to have compassion for others, you must notice that they are suffering. If you ignore the homeless person on the street, you can't feel compassion for how difficult his or her experience is. So you have to notice, you have to grow in your mindfulness of it, your awareness of it. Second, compassion involves feeling moved by others' suffering so that your heart responds to their pain. The word compassion literally means to suffer with. When this occurs, you feel warmth, caring, and the desire to help the suffering person in some way. That's the recognition of common humanity. Having compassion also means that you offer understanding and kindness to others when they fail or make mistakes, rather than judging them harshly. And that's kindness. And then finally, when you feel compassion for another rather than pity, it means that you also realize that suffering, failure, and imperfection is part of the shared human experience. Again, another recognition of common humanity. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, there but for fortune go I, where some people say there, but for the grace of God, go I. 
So having that awareness of your own vulnerability, of the possibility that you also make mistakes or that you get lost or confused, being aware of that, recognition that that just makes you human, and then turning kindness toward yourself. That's self-compassion. Again, people with self-pity tend to define themselves by the losses that have happened to them or the chances missed or the opportunities not taken or they believe were taken away from them. And we tend to think of that as a victim mentality. Self-compassion is simply being aware of your own hurt. But someone who's built their life around looking perfect or stoic doesn't have a clue how to be self-compassionate. Anxiety is far more comfortable for them to feel. Control is of the essence, and self-compassion may seem like the opposite of control. But the potency of those unexpressed emotions of childhood hurts and loss and confusion, not understood and not acknowledged, can lead to silent and mounting depression. They cannot tune into their own feelings, and perhaps you're one of those people, at least not much. Self-compassion involves acknowledgement. And as Dr. Neff said, showing kindness toward yourself. So as I was thinking about how to convey self-compassion to you and how you could get there in order to expand your own emotional range and understanding of your own emotions, I've realized that I use a visualization frequently with people, either sometimes in hypnosis or in a guided imagery. But you can also simply do it in your own mind. And what it does is it makes your kindness toward yourself take the form of your adult self noticing and acknowledging your childhood self. So you almost divide who you are in your own mind, who you are at 25 or 35 or 45 or 65, and who you were at 5. So here's the exercise. You imagine a certain time in your life... And again, this can be through hypnosis or guided imagery or your own just thinking or writing, journaling. But mostly I want you to just close your eyes and do this. You imagine a certain time in your childhood, a time that was painful for you. It has a painful memory attached. You want to stay very much in the present, realizing that you are your adult self, that you're no longer that child, but that you're going to peek into your life as a child. And then just sit there with that moment and that memory. Allow yourself to see yourself as a child, dealing with something really troubling or scary or confusing. Maybe something like, I remember when I was three and I couldn't find my mom in the grocery store. I was terrified. Or, I have memories of my brother who'd get really drunk and swear he was going to hurt me when I was left in his care. So I'd lock myself in the bathroom and he'd beat on the door until he passed out. If someone is leading you through this visualization, they can continue to lead you. Or if you're doing this yourself, you see yourself at that age and in that circumstance. But again, you're using the eyes of yourself as an adult. It's as if you're watching a movie. You can ask yourself these questions. What is the younger version of me feeling? How do I feel watching this as an adult? What does that child that was me need to hear? At this point, you again as an adult can say, she needs to hear that it's normal to be scared, or he needs to hear that it's not his fault. The adult you talks to the child you and gives comfort. Now again, you can do this as a writing exercise as well. 
but I really want you to try to visualize it. What are you doing through this exercise? You're developing self-compassion. You can feel, but with a level of objectivity that is your adult self listening in to your child self. And you can be empathic, and you can be kind, and then you can comfort yourself. The adult you comforts the child you. This can be very effective. A lot of times people say when the visualization is over, they'll say, but I can't leave the child. Or maybe you feel like the child wants to come with you. So in your imagination, in your mind's eye, you bring them with you into your adulthood. So many of us can have compassion and kindness toward a child. It's when we say as an adult, well, I'm not supposed to feel sorry for myself. But somehow you can give yourself more permission to be compassionate toward the child that you were. So what this self-compassion exercise can do, it can greatly increase your emotional understanding of yourself and expand your emotional range. Why is that important? I've often used the metaphor in therapy of our feelings, our emotions, being like an artist's palette. People who enjoy emotionally rich lives have a huge variety of colors and hues and shades that they know how to create. They have an abundance of colors to work with. Whereas someone with a far less complex palette of emotions knows only how to create or express basic colors, basic emotions. Their emotional life is very restricted. There are only a few safe emotions to express. Without self-compassion, there's too much judgment about what is okay to feel and what isn't. All feelings are okay. Not all actions are okay. That can be justified because of the feelings. Sometimes that's not true at all. But the feeling itself has value because it gives you information. And it has immense power within you. I want to say that again. Feelings in and of themselves are okay to have. You just don't want to justify hurting someone else or doing something that is self-destructive or destructive to others because of having that feeling. When you can feel compassion and kindness toward that child who was you and, of course, still is you, you can risk connecting with the emotions that were theirs and claim that experience as part of what made you you, rather than someone avoiding or denying that child's experience of life as significant. It was significant. It still is significant. But now you're an adult, and you can integrate it into who you are as well as the emotions that come along with it. I used an example in an earlier podcast, just a few podcasts ago, about a son's reflection back to his mom who identified with perfectly hidden depression, who said to her, your laughter never reaches your eyes. You know, emotions are messy. Emotions sometimes don't have a base in perceived reality, but can be triggered suddenly, unless they're highly controlled. But emotions are also what give color and texture and meaning to life. Without them, life is a pattern of facts devoid of emotion, black and white. Emotional identity is what we remember about loved ones after they die. Dad would have loved this, or Mom would have laughed herself silly, or John would have hated all this pomp and circumstance, or Elise would have been so sad to hear this. 
It's their emotional imprint that leaves such a mark. We, of course, also remember accomplishment. Granddad could whip anybody at tennis, but that somehow doesn't leave anyone knowing Granddad any better, other than he was an outstanding competitor at tennis. Your emotional stamp on others is what they remember. What is Maya Angelou's famous quote? I've learned that people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. With little to no emotional stamp or a highly controlled one, you can actually create a cloak of invisibility around you. No one knows what makes you sad or scared or angry because those emotions have been banished along with the memories that created them. I understand that it can feel like a huge risk to reach out, allow yourself to feel them. But if they're felt appropriately, if they're connected with deeply, honestly, sincerely, and they're not impulsive or destructive actions associated with them, your emotional life can be an incredible addition to your understanding of yourself and to why you're here. Of course, the next step is perhaps to allow yourself to reach out to someone who you know has the capacity to sit and truly be with you and to let them know about some feeling. Even if it's to say, I'm not sure where to begin. There's much about me in my life I don't share with anyone, but I'm figuring out that that's a problem. You start where you are with someone who has the capacity and willingness to listen. And of course, sometimes that's a professional. I do a lot of talking about emotions not killing you if you feel them. You may think you'll be swept away by them, but likely you won't be. They are simply unfamiliar to feel, yet there are exceptions. There are people whose emotional life so governs their existence that feeling them more deeply without the support of a professional can be dangerous. And I've had people dissociated in my office, meaning that their minds are protecting them from remembering certain things by literally detaching from whatever they're talking about mentally, and they sort of go somewhere else. It's just too dangerous. Often that's when trauma is involved. So a huge caveat of what I'm saying today is to be very careful if trauma is involved or if you're someone who is highly governed by emotions. But anyone can experience panic or confusion or dissociation. I just don't recommend that anyone try to deal with trauma alone. It's too much. You need a guide. You need support. You went through the trauma once alone. You don't have to go through it again alone. I've read Kristen Neff's book, Self-Compassion. She has some wonderful ideas about how to build it into your life as well. And I'll have the link to her book in the show notes. Our listener email today She's the SpeakPipe opportunity, which I'm so glad a few more of you are using. Here's her question. I have two older sisters. The second eldest sister just tried to commit suicide a few days ago. could be about a week ago. And while on one hand I'm distraught and I spend the entire evening in tears, on the other hand I'm angry. And I don't know if it's right or fair for me to be angry, but I'm angry that she did this to herself. I'm angry that she didn't think about her two children when she was doing it. I'm angry that she threw our entire family into this, this funk because of what she did. And I know that she can't help it and that it's a mental illness and that she needs help, but I can't help being mad at her for doing it. So here's my response. 
Anger is often not the first response that a family member or loved one has to someone either dying by suicide or attempting suicide, but it's one that is usually felt by many as it's part of grief. I've even had people tell me of anger they felt about accidental deaths. It might not be rational, but it's there. Your life is suddenly and inexplicably changed, and you can get mad. You're left with a lot of responsibility, or you don't understand the reasoning, or you even wonder what happened in the accident. But if there are children involved, or there's no obvious-looking reason for someone to be that desperate that they would consider suicide, people will feel anger, and actually then turn around and label the suicidal act as selfish. The thing to remember is that there are three major feelings or beliefs associated with suicide— Hopelessness, impulsivity, and believing that others would be better off without you. Someone who is severely depressed or overwhelmed can convince themselves quite well that the third is true, no matter how irrational that may seem to you. It sounds to me as if this listener is mostly angry because of the children and the family upheaval that this kind of act can bring. And she's also recognizing that she wants to remain compassionate and try to understand the depth of her loved one's pain. Now, balancing those two out is where you have to live for a while. It's uncomfortable. You're angry, confused, and hurt, and then you also feel compassion, talking about compassion again, and love. Now, some families will throw shame in there or embarrassment as well, as if their loved one's struggle cast a shadow over the family. That doesn't help. Or it casts a shadow on the love that person had for their children or their family. But people who struggle with suicidality will certainly tell you that those things are separate in their own minds, their love for their families or their children, and their struggle with depression. It is true that depression lessens your ability to recognize the impact of your behavior on those around you. That's a feature of the illness, which makes it even more difficult to handle. Now, chronic suicide attempts or verbalizations of wanting to die, especially if loved ones believe that it has become attention-seeking, can also obviously lead to anger. Your family members or friends tire of trying to help. This can lead to tragedy if it's truly a case of someone losing their grasp on wanting to live. But at other times, the person will come to understand, if given this realistic feedback, that you're using us up. They can use that awareness to help them grow and find other much better solutions or resolutions. But it can feel like a real crapshoot if you set that boundary, and it's tough to handle. Again, I always recommend in trying to make decisions like that to talk with your family members and friends and to bring a therapist in who might be able to come up with some other ideas. Thanks for a great question. I'm so sorry about your family members struggling and the struggle and the impact it's had on your family. It also just occurred to me, as I said that, that sometimes it's easier to express anger than fear. So, you know, you might want to think about, are you actually afraid as well? You know, it's funny how sometimes when I'm talking, I can get ideas that I didn't write down before. I'm sure there are other ideas about this topic because it's a complicated one, but I hope that's helpful. Thank you again for being here today on Self Work. There are so many more of you this month. I am so pleased. I wouldn't say we doubled in listenership, but it's practically there. So I'm very grateful and honored, as I said at the beginning, for y'all to be here. 
I do have a new book out, Perfectly Hidden Depression, How to Break Free from the Perfectionism that Masks Your Depression. And one of you this week, someone named Terry, actually left a review. And I could tell it's a one-sentence wonderful review. And I so appreciate that. If more of you could leave reviews, I'd be very grateful because that's what's going to let people know that the book has a vital message. And I do believe and have a lot of passion for the idea that this message is really important. So I'm asking for your help in getting it out there. You can also use reviews here on iTunes or wherever you listen to support my work as well. That's always helpful, and I greatly appreciate it. I'm available to you at AskDrMargaret at DrMargaretRutherford.com, or you can use the SpeakPipe function that you can find on my website or in the show notes. And I'd love to hear from you. It really tells me who you are, why you listen, and what you're wondering about. I also want to offer something to my listeners. I've begun to think about going to different parts of the country and trying to talk about perfectly hidden depression. So if some of you are in a group of women or men that would want to hear more about this or your business or whatever you can think of, just email me. I might not be able to do it. But for example, someone let me know in New Jersey that they would love for me to speak to their Rotary Club. Now, I can't go to all the way to New Jersey for one Rotary Club, but I could go, if there were several people in the Northeast, maybe I could group those together and then justify the expense. Anyway, if you'd like for me to come to your area, email me at AskDrMargaret at DrMargaretRutherford.com. I also have a Facebook closed group at facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. That's facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. And I'd love to have you. It's a diverse and wonderful group with members from all over the world, both men and women. So I'd love to have you there. Again, thank you so much for being here. Take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.